First, I want to thank everyone for inviting me to preach to your congregation. It's always an honor to speak to the people of God. I hope you will forgive me for preaching in my office. There is limited space, and I couldn't find a place to stand and give the homily like I want to give it to you. So hopefully this comes across well and that you're blessed by it. To be honest, I struggled a little bit with writing this sermon, and not because I don't have anything I think relevant to say about justice in the present moment, because I clearly do. I spent the last three or four years in writing and thinking about scripture, justice, and hope. I wrote a book about it called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. So I, I know, or at least I think I know, um, what black Christians in particular need to hear because I'm experiencing it. But I'm assuming that the majority of this congregation is white, and you may not have noticed this, but I'm not a white Christian. And although I spend a lot of time in those circles, um, the particular sets of issues and problems are things that I have to guess at, because I cannot, by definition, participate in all white conversations. In other words, there are things that people say to me when I'm around that I may not, they may not be willing to say in my absence. There's another problem when it comes to preaching, and this isn't a sermon about sermons, but it's at least able for me to clear my throat and, and get my eyes, my ideas towards you well. I'm always, I must always be aware of how much truth a congregation can receive and how can I help the congregation to move from where they are to the place where God would, might have them be. But that always involves a certain amount of guessing and editing. Not exactly falsehood, but engaging a question or thinking about for myself what is plausible in a world in which I'm an outsider. I've not visited with you. I've not spent time with you. So for me to preach to a congregation that I don't know is hard. But even I've discovered when it is hard, it's best to tell the truth as best as I can and not edit it too much to make it palatable. So there might be parts of this sermon that are hard. But on the other side of a hard thing is a hope, a good thing. And that isn't that the gospel, right? We, we, Jesus suffered something profoundly damaging on the cross. He suffered pain and mistreatment. But on the other side of that pain and that mistreatment, despite his innocence, there was real joy. So what I want to say is that, that, that every sermon has to take us through that journey through the crucifixion and, 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 and the reality of the weight of what our sin does in the world. But a sermon doesn't just end with we are sinful and we're in need of a savior. The good news is that there's a resurrection of Jesus. And because of the resurrection, there's always this chance to um, begin again. I'm constantly reminded of um, Paul's words in Galatians 4.16 that it's become something of my mantra in this day. And, and Paul says to the church in Galatia, have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? And although I don't know you, I would rather not be your enemy. So I hope that everything that I have to say to you all um, um, is helpful. We'll get to Ephesians in a moment. Fear not. Um, I'm an exegete. But first, one more thing. If I'm allowed to keep talking about talking. I want to say what it's like to maybe give you an insight into what it's like to be an African-American who walks into a majority white setting. Um, like many adults, I, when I move to a new city or a new community, I'm looking for a place to worship and grow as a Christian. That's kind of what I want. I want a place that is biblically faithful. But as a father and a husband, I have the added burden 
are trying to find a place where my children and me and my wife can flourish. This means that I have to find a church that values the whole of who we are, a multiracial family. And so I want myself and my children to experience the kingdom of God as depicted in the scriptures, which includes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together in worship. I want my children to be in a church that cared about the things that are happening in the black and brown communities in which they find themselves. And this is a calculus that sometimes, just to be honest, white families might not have to deal with. They might wonder, are the youth programs good? Is the music something that suits my taste? Are the sermon biblicals? But the question of whether or not the pastor is going to value the whole of who we are is oftentimes a, a, a unique burden that exists in the lives of people of color. Now, here's another reality I want to say about this. And, and Literally every church that I've attended, every majority white church and I've attended is is often most of them very friendly. I've, I've, I've rarely had outright racist. You know, it happens every now and then, but like outright, outright racist. We don't want you around. But the truth is, in most of those churches, they're willing to accept me if I'm willing to conform to the, the culture that already exists. They're willing to have me there, They're willing to take pictures of me and my family and post them on the website. But they rarely ask the question of what do we need to do to become the kind of church that welcomes all into its doors? I think that most churches would like to be more diverse, but they're not willing to suffer to be diverse. In this, there's this letter in, in, in John's, John's first letter to his churches. He has this statement, John the Elder he writes, I am writing to you to make my joy complete. There was something missing in John's joy that he needed his congregation to fulfill, right? Like, so John had Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He had sat with Jesus. He was the apostle. But he said there was something missing until the congregation experienced that joy of the Lord. And what I wonder is, do do my majority white churches actually feel that sense of incompleteness without their other brothers and sisters in Christ? In other words, are they completely sufficient? Or is this something that is unique that we will bring to the body to the body, to a local congregation that is missing without our presence? And is that actual lack felt in many of the communities um, in which the church kind of finds itself in the world? Now, what does all of this have to do with the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus? Well, actually everything. At the end of chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the glorious fact that Christ has ended the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles through the cross. Can I just read just a little bit of it? This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 down to whenever I get tired of reading it. Maybe I'll read too much. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he is our peace and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with his commandments and his ordinance that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. It might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the hostility through it. So Paul has spoken extensively and passionately about the fact that the cross of Christ has, extend, has ended the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and thereby making peace. Now, there are differences between Jews and Gentiles are not the same. This, I don't want you to get confused. The differences between Jews and Gentiles are not the same as the differences we face. The differences between Jews and Gentiles were both theological and cultural. But nonetheless, Paul lost the fact that the cross brought together brought them together as a dwelling place for God. What does any of this have to do with our actual passage, which is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 12? Well, the heart of it comes when we look at verse 1, and I want you to read this in light of what Paul just said about the gospel in the present moment. Paul says, It is for this reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. I want you to understand that there was another path through life for Paul. It didn't involve suffering. It didn't involve traveling around the empire, enduring beatings, persecution, opposition from other Christians. Paul could have, and keep in mind, Paul could have moved back to Tarsus and taken up shop with a local Jewish Christian church, found him a great Jewish Christian woman, got married, had babies, and lived out his life in obscurity. But he didn't. He wound up in prison. So he writes to the Ephesians from prison. He ended up in what John Lewis called good trouble. And he tells the Ephesians that he's in prison for them. And so immediately we come to it. There is no ministry. There is no mission or effort engaged in on behalf of God that does not involve suffering. Church life and ministry is crucified. Paul suffered for the Gentiles. And so the question becomes, what are we as a church actually willing to suffer in order to become the congregation that welcomes in the nations? I want you to listen very closely to what Paul says about his ministry in prison. So Paul said, okay, I'm in prison. I'm in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. So this raises the question for us. What are we willing to suffer? But I want you to understand what, how Paul describes his ministry while he's, or, or the revelation that he occurs while he's, or while he's writing in prison. He speaks of the revelation that he has on the road to Damascus. He talks about a mystery that the previous generations did not see. What is it? What is this plot twist that Paul said the previous generations did not see that, that, that spurs on, that is this undergirding passion for his ministry? Now, we're tempted to say that the plot twist in early Christianity and a lot of the ways in which the gospel is preached in, 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 in the wider church is the plot twist that Paul didn't see is that we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Now, trust me, I'm not here to claim in some sense that we earn our salvation by the good deeds that we do. Completely would disagree with that. But let's actually attend to what Paul says. What is this thing of which he is a steward? 
This is what he says. This is verse three. The mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I wrote about you in a few words earlier. In the former generation, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So Paul is not simply excited about the fact that we're saved apart from anything that we do. That's not the thing that people didn't see coming. He talked about the fact that the Gentiles are fellow heirs through the gospel. He's excited about what the gospel does. And what the gospel does is it gathers the nations under the lordship of Jesus. So once we understand that this is the, 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 the plot twist in Paul's ministry, a vision for a multi-ethnic church gathered under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we understand why Paul was willing, willing to suffer. And if this is the thing, if this, if this is the plot twist, this thing that, that, that brings Paul inspiration, then are we preaching the gospel rightly when the people in our congregations don't see this passion? When they can hear the gospel and not immediately understand the implications of it for the nation? Paul thinks of this gospel as something of which it is precious and, and, and that he's a steward. One of the things about um, getting older, and some of you may think that I'm old, some of you may think that I'm young, I'm 41. But I remember when, when it was um, I was a teenager. I'm 18, 19 years old, and I'm in college, and I'm basically only responsible for myself. You know, I need to do some, I need to do well in school and get some good grades so that my mom is somewhat proud of me. But, but mostly, I was um, responsible for me. But one of the things that happens as you get older, you kind of begin to acquire more responsibility. I'm now married and I'm a steward of my wife's joy and it's precious to me. I have four children and I'm responsible for their, God has given me these four children as, as, as these wonderful gifts that I must raise, care for, love, feed, provide for. One of the other things that, that has happened over the last year in my life is that I developed something of a public platform and I've had a successful book. And so now people are looking at me to say, what do you want to say about Christianity? And I take that public responsibility very seriously. I'm a steward of the influence that God has given to me. And now that I have these, these things that are precious to me, I am very careful with how they're treated and what happens to them. Paul thinks that the gospel that brings together Jews and Gentiles is a mystery that he has received of which he is a steward. And so he wants to make sure that the Ephesians understand that gospel so they might live it out. So what I want you to understand is everyone who has the Bible and who has Paul's letter to the Ephesians have received this gift that he has given to us, something that the previous generations could not see, that the gospel was intended to bring us all together under the lordship of Jesus. And once we get that story right, once we understand what the gospel is supposed to do to bring us together under the lordship of Jesus, then our union across difference anchored in the gospel becomes this thing for which we're willing to suffer. We are not optional extras in each other's lives. We need each other, black, 
white, Asian, Latina, to visibly manifest in our local context what the gospel does. And this is why you get all, I'm just going to skip down to verse 13. This is why he says in verse 13, I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings, for they are your glory. Why can Paul glory in his imprisonment? Why can he say something that the Ephesian church could look at his at this imprisonment as a manifestation of their glory? Because Paul understood what the gospel did. Now, one of the things that happens when you are an African-American who talks about race and justice in these places, you get a lot of abuse and you suffer a lot. You get called everything but a child of God. And I want to be clear about something. It's not the job of black Christians to suffer for the redemptions of their brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't have to put up with um, racist taunts and chants and all of these other things in order to just be treated as humans. So that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is the reason that I don't give up for give up on the vision of the church as a union across difference is because this is what I believe the gospel says that that, that we should do. So what does this mean then for your church? How does it actually hit the ground? Well, this is what it means. And I can only point you towards this. And you have to actually sit down in your local context and work out what this means. When you begin to say to yourself, we're not optional extras in each other's lives. Do we need each other to visibly manifest what the gospel is supposed to do? Then the second question arises quickly on the heels of that. Well, then what does it take for me to love my neighbor well in order for my neighbor to be feel at home in this community? And if you're dealing with black and brown people, I'm just going to make this assumption. In order to love your neighbor well, that you need to be able to weep along with your neighbor and that your neighbor's problems becomes your problems. And the problems that face African-Americans and other people of color in this country it, are the problems of systemic injustice and racism. And so the issues of racism and systemic injustice are not separated from evangelism. They're not separated from the gospel. They're not separated from neighborly love. They're part of a chain. The gospel is supposed to be together. What does it take for us to be together? Well, for us to be together, it needs to have real love and a shared concern. And when you allow the people who are actually suffering to talk about their concerns and those problems become your problems, then you find yourself on the side of justice. Now I will tell you, if you take those series of steps, I can't guarantee you that your church is going to grow. I can't. I can't guarantee that you're not going to receive um, a lot of pushback. Actually, I, I can. I can promise you that you will. But what you can do, if you begin to journey down this path, is that you can better embody what the gospel is supposed to do. And then, when you look back on the suffering that you've engaged in to be the kind of church that you can be, then you could be like Paul and say, you know what? The things that I went through were worth it because it helped me to be more faithful to Jesus. Thank you for your time. Godspeed.